Thank you. Building an extra door sounds more like a way of escape. Oh, it's so good to be with you. Um, I've gotten to know Harvest just from a distance. I've been friends with Pastor Jerry for uh, a few years now, and we spend time together. I do some retreats that Jerry's involved with, and just recently have gotten to know Curtis, Pastor Curtis, and uh, he asked me to come and in the midst of this series. And there couldn't be a better series for me to jump in and be a part of than something on solitude and silence. Um, because of what Ferdinand mentioned, what I do with Soul Leader Resources, we really come alongside pastors and churches and help them to find wholeness. And I don't think you can find wholeness in our world today if you don't learn about spiritual disciplines. But some of us might be going, hmm, that's a difficult word. Discipline sounds, sounds kind of harsh. It sounds kind of negative. Um, they're also called practices. They might, you might refer to them as habits. Um, but I wanted to talk about them for a second. First, let me just start by saying this. If you could always have Jesus on your mind, it would solve 99% of your problems. But that's tough to do, isn't it? What would it be like to always have God on your mind? Always be thinking about God. You wouldn't struggle with many of the other things that come into our minds and cause problems for us, right? So it's a difficult thing to be able to think about, but just that one reality, if you could have God on your mind always, it would solve almost all of your problems, maybe all of them. That's what we're talking about in the midst of a series like this, and I'm so thankful that Curtis would do a series over the summer like this because it's so important for churches. Many churches don't pay attention to this. Many churches just ignore things like spiritual disciplines or assume that they'll happen by accident. Uh, or hope that people will learn about them, and they don't. And so to do that, you're blessed to have a pastor like Curtis. I hope you love and appreciate him. It's good that he and his wife could be away on vacation this week. It's also good that Jerry and Priscilla and some others on the team could be in Honduras uh, over the next uh, week and a half or so, I think, 10 days or so, that they're there. And so one of the things I get to do is go around to various churches and be a little bit like an apostle and say, I hear good things about you. I hear about your story. I know you're trying to get into a building and you've been a portable church forever and how much fun it is to set up and tear down every Sunday. And I know a little bit of your story, but I get to come along and say, you're blessed to have the leaders that you do. And it's good to be here with you in the midst of it this morning. And so I'll just do my best to make a contribution to help you understand, hopefully, what spiritual disciplines are a little bit better, maybe a little different perspective than what Curtis has already shared the last three weeks. And then we'll hone in on solitude and silence, okay? A little bit difficult to do. Maybe it would have been better to just say, hey, we're in solitude instead of church today, so everybody go spend time alone for the next hour and a half. Um, that's a little difficult to do. It might seem a little strange for, for some, uh, but it might have been the best thing that we could do at the same time. Let me talk about what spiritual disciplines are not. And I'm going to use the word spiritual disciplines because that's the traditional one. But um, you can use practices or habits or something that works for you if you would like. But spiritual disciplines don't make you more spiritual. So that's a little strange from the beginning to be able to say that, but we hear spiritual disciplines and I think, I want to become more spiritual, therefore I will practice them. Don't think that. If you think that, you're going down the wrong road. If you approach them wrongly, they just become another form of legalism. Does that make sense? It's like, just trying harder. If I just do this thing, then my life will be in, in place. But that's not what spiritual disciplines are meant to do. 
Um, it's a little bit like trying harder, you know. It's like a fly that is in a room and trying to get out the window. You ever watch that? It, the poor fly, right? You know, it buzzes and then it hits its little fly brain against the window trying to get out. It can't do it. You know, there might be an open door just over here, but the fly keeps trying to fly through the window. That's trying harder. That's legalism. Trying harder to think it's going to get me somewhere is just another form of legalism. Don't go down that road. It's not helpful to be able to do that. Don't think of spiritual disciplines either in terms of earning. Like if I do this, it's going to earn me something. Because it's not about earning. We know from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? By grace we've been saved through faith. Not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. Not as a result of works. That no one should boast. We're not trying to earn salvation. But that doesn't mean that it's not good to put in effort. See the difference? Earning says I need to prove something about myself and make it happen myself. Effort says, no, I'm still in the game. I need to involve myself, my mind, my body, my relationships in this. And effort is a good thing. Because it says in that passage in Ephesians, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. You will not do good works if you don't put some effort into the spiritual life. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. But if you decide to do nothing, know that it's going to be without Jesus. It's easy to decide not to do anything, but Jesus isn't going to go along with you. So as a, as, as a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus, one of the greatest goals is to decide to do something and to move forward in the Christian life. And spiritual disciplines come alongside and help us do that. So what are they? They are focused effort. They're focused effort, and effort is a good thing. It's when I do something in my power that enables me to do what I cannot do in my own power. What did I just say? It's when you do something that you can do, okay? It's in your power to do it. A discipline like meditation, okay? The ones you've covered already. Or studying God's word and reading God's word. You can do those things. But doing those things allow you to do something that you can't do. So, for example, uh, any of you ever get angry? Ever? Yeah, thank you for being a little bit honest. And if you don't know, someone said to me once, are you angry? I said, no, I'm not angry. Are you an angry person? No, I'm not an angry person. They said, how do you drive? When someone cuts you off on the freeway, how do you respond? Okay, yeah, I, I'm an angry person. And anger comes out at times when someone pushes our buttons or someone gets in our way or there's a blocked goal and we realize I have more. So you say, I, wanna, I don't want to be an angry person because Jesus said that's not a helpful thing to live, to live as an angry person. So I'm just going to try harder to do it. How much does that work to try to change your anger? doesn't work, right? If you've tried it, you know, okay? So... A spiritual discipline comes along and helps you learn to be more patient, maybe. So that when someone does cut you off on the freeway and something happens, you're able to respond appropriately. And there's always going to be a test. That happened this week. On Thursday night, my wife was driving to a group of pastor's wives that she leads. And she was making a left turn on a green arrow, and someone ran a red light. And it just smashed right into her. She called me and said, I've been in a car accident. You know, are you okay? Yes, I'm okay. I'm thankful now. But then what's your first emotion? Where's it going to go? I need to go pick you up. So I drove to pick her up, and there's the person that ran the red light. I just want to go give him a big hug. <laughs> I love you. Thank you so much for probably totaling our car and giving my wife a lot of pain. Um, you know, how, what's your response when you see that person? And I'll be honest, it was a str it's a struggle. I felt anger as I saw that person. 
right? So what's our first response going to be when someone comes across and something negative happens in our life? You can't determine that. A spiritual discipline, though, helps you because it's in, it indirectly changes your heart, indirectly changes your mind in a way so that when something directly happens to you, you have a different response. Does that make sense? This is a little tricky. It's a little hard to describe so that it makes sense and that it's clear, but I'll try to do it a number of different ways so that hopefully it'll be clear. And this one thing, sometimes we just directly try to do things and they don't work. So if you see something not working in your life, ask, am I trying too hard? Am I just trying to force it and make it happen? That's direction, right? When I directly try to make something happen. But indirection is when I indirectly apply my life and my heart and my mind and my body to different things, and then it changes me. It's transformation. Spiritual formation is really transformation. Change is happening even when you don't know it, right? Just as if you were to eat a meal with good nutrition, and it's changing you, or have a good night's sleep, and it's changing you, or exercise your muscles, and they grow. You don't see it happen, but you know you're going to be different. That's what spiritual disciplines are like. They make us stronger. I thought about it this way, too. This is so needed in our culture today because of how fast everything is going, how swift it's going, how dangerous, really, it is to live out there. And the analogy that popped into my mind, I'm not sure why, was swimming in a stream. Any of you ever been to Yosemite National Park? Beautiful place to go, right? Swimming in a stream, beautiful waterfalls. Um, but there's signs that they place at specific points especially when the stream happens to be above a waterfall. And tragically, certain people don't pay attention to those signs, right? I think it happened again this summer. It happens fairly frequently. A number of years ago, when I was a youth pastor, many years ago, my wife and I took our youth group up to Yosemite, and we went up above Vernal Falls, I think it was, where the Emerald Pond is. Have you seen the Emerald Pond? Back in the day, they didn't have signs there, but we decided we were going to go swimming, and we swam across Emerald Pond. Well, Emerald Pond is only a few hundred feet away from Vernal Falls. And you tend to think, oh, I have plenty of room. I've got plenty of distance. And I'm a decent swimmer. And this water's really cold, so I don't want to be in it very long. So I'm going to just swim hard, fast, get to the other side. I'll be good. We did that. We swam across it, got to the other side. We're real proud of ourselves. Now there are signs that say, do not swim in Emerald Pond. Because many people, you know, and they have this little sign of this person going over a waterfall. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it... It's sort of sad we, like, we laugh at that, but it happens. People go over the falls. When we don't pay attention to culture and what's going on outside of us, uh, it's a little bit like that, isn't it? Not paying attention to the sign that says, don't swim here, uh, because the chance of you going over a waterfall is pretty strong, very dangerous. And living in our culture is a bit like that. Spiritual disciplines give us stronger swimming skills, maybe. They give us the ability to read signs about where to stay out of the river. Spiritual disciplines link us in community to people who will assist each other as we swim across. So however you take that analogy, just know that you can't do it alone. And there's a lot of danger swimming in the culture that we are swimming in. So Curtis asked me to talk on solitude and silence. Very important spiritual disciplines. In fact, I believe they're the foundational spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. If you don't practice solitude and silence, you're not going to get a lot of places. They're so, so important to be able to do that and many other 
uh, authors and scholars and people who have practiced these things for many years would, would agree and say the same thing. Maybe Curtis just wanted me to do it because he knew I took leaders and pastors out on these trips and we do solitude together. We'll often go out and do solitude for four hours or six hours. I was just in Sacramento teaching for a seminary that I teach for and we had a class of about 15 students and on a Saturday we went out and did a six-hour day in solitude together. But that wasn't the remarkable thing. The more remarkable thing was it was 112 degrees outside. So maybe Curtis is figuring if he can get 15 people to do solitude in 112 degrees, then you can convince anybody that this is important. So I am here to try to encourage you to do it, but not necessarily in 112 degrees. That wasn't very wise, but we didn't have a choice. It was scheduled on that day. It's a great thing to be able to do. Jesus modeled it in his own life. Um, Passage of scripture, we could look at a number of different places, but in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, It says about Jesus, and if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Mark chapter 1, 35. Again, this is at the beginning of Jesus' life, very early on in his ministry. Jesus had real busy days. His life was very full, okay? Most of us, we think we lead busy life. Jesus had many people. Most of us do not have the amount of people coming to seek us out that Jesus had. Is that fair? Trying Trying to get a hold of us? And it says in Mark 1, 35, very early in the morning... While it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now, work with me here. That's not just a quiet time. That's not just Jesus getting up to do his devotions, okay? There's a difference here. He went, and it tells us very specifically, to a solitary place to pray. Have you ever noticed that Jesus spent a lot of time trying to get away from people? He didn't spend his time seeking, pe- trying to find people. They would always find him, and he spent more time trying to get away from people. Now, there's something to that. I think he knew that if you're constantly surrounded by people in needs, etc., you will not have anything to give. You can't give away what you don't have. And even Jesus, who he was, knew that he needed to get away in relationship with the Father in order to fill up his tank to have something to give. And there's many other examples we could look at, but that one stands out to me as just a crystal clear example that Jesus knew before a busy day, he needed to spend some time in a solitary place. Now, I'll just say, because Ferdinand referred to it too, there's, just a, there's different life stages that you're in, right? And by no means do I look down on anybody at any life stage. How many of you are young moms? Or you've got kids in the home and lots of kids going around. There's a number of you that are here, right? And you're thinking, yeah, right. How am I ever going to find some solitude time and get away? You know, maybe I can lock myself in the bathroom and get a few minutes somewhere. So I'm not trying to in any way compare that. I would just encourage you in whatever life stage you are to look for ways to do it. When, when my wife and I had small kids, our kids are 23 and 22 right now. But when we had small kids, we were looking for ways to do these things and support each other in them. That's why whenever there's two parents, that's a real blessing to be able to support each other. Grandparents can always help out with those kinds of things. Good friends. And if you don't have any of those, that's what a church family is about, right? To be a family to each other. And I think we even need to look for ways to encourage each other to do things like this. So, so what is solitude? Let's talk about that for a few minutes. Simply, it's choosing to be away from people for a period of time to make room for God in your life. That's really what it is. Now, I I gave you a one-page handout that you can take away and read about solitude and silence, and hopefully that'll be a helpful resource to you. But I want to really expand on a number of those things so that they make sense, okay? Getting away for a period of time 
to make room for God in your life. God does not compete for our attention. Have you ever noticed that? He doesn't. God doesn't compete for our attention. You say, if God wanted our attention, why doesn't he just make himself more obvious? He lets us do our own thing. He lets us put our focus where we think our focus is needed. He lets us put energies into the things that we think we need to put energy into. This can be very threatening for us because we've identified our lives with busyness so much. So even to talk about what it means to, to, to do solitude might feel threatening. might feel like it's just impossible with the busy life that we live. The good news is solitude can cure you of busyness. In a, in a sense, you'll never be busy again because you'll have space in your life and you will know that that space is full of God. Like I said in the beginning, if we could always have God on our minds, it would solve 99% of our problems. If we can practice making space for God in our lives, it will help us get to the place where busyness just doesn't seem as significant or as important anymore. In fact, it seems a lot more important to focus on God. But some of us have been busy for so long, we have what psychologists have called hurry sickness. And if you can relate to this, where it's not just about being busy, because really even Jesus was busy. He had a lot to do. But do you notice that Jesus was never in a hurry? I love that. He was never in a hurry. Now some of that was because maybe our bodies were designed for camel travel and walking around, and now we don't have that luxury anymore. When they went somewhere, they would walk from place to place, and it might take them a half hour, an hour, three days, and they would spend time talking together, right? But in our day, we have hurry sickness. There's a little test you can give yourself about hurry sickness, too. I don't know if you've ever done this. If, if you think that, okay, because hurry sickness is really about having a, a hurried heart. Internally, you're always in a hurry. Can you relate to that? It's hard to calm down. It's hard to be at peace. It's hard to stay in one place. At, you're, you're always rushing. You're always thinking about the next thing. Those of you with hurry sickness are probably thinking about all the things you need to hurry and go do as soon as we get out of here this afternoon, Okay. But the way you can kind of check it, and there, there's a few other ways that you can do that. When you go into a store, grocery store or whatever, and you choose a line, do you look for the shortest line, right? Thank you. You look for the shortest line, okay? Now, here's how you really know if you have hurry sickness. You get in the shortest line, but you look over and you go, I was also thinking about getting in that line over there. And that line has one, two, three people, and my line has one, two, yeah, they got the same. I'm going to keep track as we go forward here, a little bit at a time. And, and if you get to the front and that line wins, and you should have been in that line, and you're angry, you have hurry sickness, okay? You ever did, you're laughing because you know what I'm talking about, right? Or you come up to a stoplight, you're driving in the car, you come up to a light, and all the lanes are blocked, okay? Which lane do you choose to get in? The shortest lane, right? Or if they all have like only one car, then you're looking, hmm, which is the fastest car, or which, is the, which has the driver that might take off fast, you know? If I'm looking and I see a gray head in there, I'm not going to get behind that one. If it's a truck, I'm not going to get behind that one. Any of you do these kinds of things? We do them, don't we? And that kind of is an indicator of how we hurry through life. We have hurry sickness. We're always looking to rush and to be somewhere and to get somewhere. When in reality, one of the greatest gifts is just to be. And not always to be hurrying. And not always to be so busy. The main thing of solitude, and if you catch nothing else today, catch this. The main part of solitude is to do nothing. 
That's why they pay me the big bucks. Yeah, that was complicated, right? Rocket science. The main part of solitude is to do nothing. When I send students out or pastors out and we do solitude times together, they're always like, well, what do I bring? What do I take with me? You know, can I take my Bible? Can I take this book I've been wanting to read forever? Can I take my, my iPod? Can I take my phone? Can I take? And the answer I usually give them is, no, that wouldn't be best. And we really struggle with that. But then you're really not doing solitude if you don't get away. Now, solitude isn't just about being alone. It's about being alone with God. There's a difference. It's one thing to be alone. That's just lonely. If I'm just trying to get alone, that just makes me more lonely. But if my purpose is to make space for God in my life, which is a much better way to describe that, how do I make space for God in my life? That's not being alone. Because I'm not lonely. And therefore, I don't want to bring a bunch of stuff. When you have an appointment with somebody and you sit in a meeting or you have coffee with someone you haven't seen for a long time and you're sitting in a Starbucks or something or you invite someone to your home, how fun would it be to say, I'm sorry, but I, w- I-, I want to read this really good book, you know? And, and, and what's it like when someone's on their phone the whole time when you're with them? Do you want to do that to God? See? That's why I say, don't bring a bunch of stuff into solitude. It's you and God. Just bring nothing. It's okay. Don't even try to accomplish what you're supposed to accomplish in solitude. Because usually solitude goes with silence, goes with prayer. Those three things go together. And you go into it, you go, I want to accomplish, I want to have a good time of prayer. Well, if you're trying so hard to do that, you're going to miss it. You won't have a good time of prayer. You'll probably have no time of prayer. Because really, solitude is prayer. Solitude is just resting in the presence of God in a way that allows you to communicate with God, listen to God, hear from God, sense what's going on within you in a way that you normally don't have a chance to do. You learn to be present where you are. So you do your best to not have any expectations. When you spend some time in solitude, time with God, don't bring a bunch of expectations because if you do, promise you, you'll be let down. Try your best to put your expectations aside and go, God, whatever you have for me in this time will be good enough. Learn to be present where you are. And the length of it and intensity are important. And they interact with each other. So my encouragement is try to get some solitude, but know that the shorter it is, the harder it will be. It's really not until you're able to get a good amount of time that something begins to happen in you. And I know some of you that don't have space or have to get away from children or find care for your children, that makes it even more difficult. But you can start small. Start with a half hour or an hour, and that's a good thing. But my encouragement is if you're really going to do some solitude time, try to get a half a day. Try to get like four hours, three or four hours, where you can be alone with God. Because it's not after that period of time that something starts to happen. Um, Henry Nouwen, who's written on this for, uh, in, in a number of different books, writes that when we go into solitude, our brain becomes like a banana tree filled with monkeys. You can relate to that, you know? It's just somehow your, your mind just goes crazy. And, and you have so much you're thinking about and all the distractions and everything comes in. You ever have that happen where you stop and then all of a sudden, this happens in church for my wife and I when we'll sit next to each other. Uh, she'll take out her bulletin and she'll, she'll, she'll be writing things and I'm thinking, she's writing notes, you know, on the sermon. And I look and it's this long to-do list because whenever she gets and she stops, all the stuff comes rushing in. And our brains are a little like that, right? Sometimes when we stop, all these other thoughts are coming in. So you, I forgive you if you're writing to-do lists or stuff that you need to do this afternoon. But 
sometimes one of the best things you can do at the beginning of solitude is take a piece of paper and just write everything down that's on your mind. Just get it all out on paper. You know, all the distractions that are coming in, clear it out, fold it up, put it away. Or carry a little 3 by 5 card with you. If you're going to go out in nature and spend time with God, it's a great way to do it. Take a 3 by 5 card or something, a little pen, put it in your pocket. Something comes to mind, oh, i got to do that. Rather than be distracted, write it down, put it away. Or if you happen to have your phone with you, which I don't recommend because we're so controlled by our phones today, you could type it in your phone, put a little to-do list or whatever, put it away. Turn your phone off, but, you know, wherever you keep your list is what I'm trying to say. Look for ways to then let it grow, to let it grow. Do enough solitude that you can get a feel for it, and it's good. It might feel, how, how many of you does this sound a little bit scary to? It's just a little bit scary. Come, thank you for being honest, I know. Okay, this should be scary. When, out of my class of 15 seminary students that we just did this a couple of weeks ago, we had six hours of solitude, about three-fourths of them were scared to death to go do this. And these are seminary students preparing for ministry, okay? So my guess is at least that many of you probably feel scared. If not, you're way more spiritual than they are. But it's okay to be scared because we don't do this kind of thing in our culture. We don't know how to get away. We just know how to stay busy. And we stay busy to stay distracted, and we stay distracted so we don't have to feel the pain or some of the things we're thinking about or some of the struggles that we're wrestling through. And so we want to stay a bit numb, a bit anesthetized. So busyness is one of the safest, cleanest ways to do that, okay? Because if you're a disciple of Jesus, it's not great to go down to the bar and get drunk. Or it's not great to use drugs to anesthetize ourselves. You get what I'm saying? We want to escape. We want to kind of numb out and numb our minds away from things. And in solitude, you don't do that. You're facing raw reality. It's you and God. So it is a bit scary. And I just want to tell you that. That's sort of the elephant in the room. And I'll say, okay, let's talk about it. It's hard to do. It's scary to do. And everything's going to fight against it. But it's a great thing to do. It's a good thing to do. Jesus modeled it for us. And like I said, remember, it's not loneliness. Loneliness is the pain of being alone. Solitude is the joy of being alone. And really, if you never want to be lonely again, practice solitude. Solitude will cure you of your loneliness because you will live with God in a way that you've never done it before. I did something weird. After a number of months, even years of practicing solitude, about one day a month, I would spend an entire day, once a month, with God. And after doing this for a while, I thought, you know, I usually go to a park, or I'll go to the beach, and to get away somewhere, to be as far away from people as I can. And I'd kind of gotten good at that. I, I'd done a number, I'd, I'd even done a solitude drive, where I drove alone for like hours, and just drove. Okay, gas prices were cheaper back then. But uh, you can do solitude all different ways. But I thought, I'm going to try something really different. I had a Disneyland annual pass, so I thought, I'm going to do solitude at Disneyland. I bet nobody's ever done that before. So I did. So I walked into the park, and I thought, how do I do this? And I thought, well, I'm alone here. I didn't bring anybody with me, but there's me and 60,000 other people. Um, but I will just walk around the perimeter of the park, and I'll just walk very slowly. I will walk, you know, with my hands behind my back, which is really a good practice. If, you, if you're a fast walker, you're always walking everywhere fast in a hurry, you can't walk as fast as you put your hands behind your back. I don't know if you've never noticed that. So if you decide to stroll somewhere and put your hands behind your back, You'll probably walk slower. And I walked around the entire perimeter of Disneyland. And it was one of the most unique experiences I ever had. Because I was in the midst of 60,000 people, but I was alone. Because no, I didn't go with my wife. I didn't go with a friend. I was all alone. But I didn't feel lonely. Because God walked with me. 
And I'll tell you, I saw things with different eyes than I've ever seen before. You notice things, you know? And you like people watching? You sit back and you watch people, what they're doing, what they're saying, what they're thinking and stuff? Well, Disneyland's a great place to people watch anyway. So that entire, it took me a few hours to do because I walked very slowly. I People watched and I listened and I saw things I never had seen before. Even though I had an annual pass and went to Disneyland quite frequently. So give it a try, you know? If you don't go to Disneyland, go, yesterday my wife and I spent a day together at the Orange County Fair. Yes, chocolate-covered bacon. Oh, dear, I feel greasy today just by being there. You know, I felt greasy last night sleeping just because you get the spray of everything. So you can always go somewhere like the Orange County Fair. I'm going to do a solitude day there in the midst of all this hustle. The pig races were really awesome, by the way. I, I digress. Um, some fun stuff. You, you can go and not be alone. Does that make sense? You take God with you. You learn to live with God, walk with God, and take God in ways that you might normally even think about. And you discover that you really do have a soul. You have a soul. I have a soul. There's something to you other than what you do. And those of us that serve people, we really need to know that. When you're around people a lot, you're in a job where you're working with people all the time, you lose your soul, you lose your personhood, you lose your identity, and you need to know that. I am not my functions. I am not my role. I am not my title. I am not my job description. And in solitude, God reminds you of that. In fact, the reason you go out alone is because it clears away all the distractions and it puts you in a place where you are 100% dependent on God to share with you how much he loves you. You go out alone and you can't help but feel God just saying, I want to be there with you. You're my child. And in that wonderful, dependent relationship, you leave it very differently. You walk away knowing that God cares so much about you and that you are a human being, not a human doing. You can stop doing all the stuff. And solitude is, and that's why I called this message this, solitude is the furnace of transformation. A lot happens there. You might say, I'm not doing anything. You told me not to bring anything. Right, you're not doing anything. But transformation is happening in your heart, in your soul, in ways that it never happens otherwise. I promise. I would love you to go do that, spend some time in solitude, and then email me some of the results. I would love to hear some stories from that. Well, let's talk about silence. Silence goes along with solitude. I won't spend quite as long on here, but it's sort of a given when you go to be alone. Usually, two things of silence, though, right? You can either be in silence, get away from noise. That's a little harder to do in the places that we live, okay? Irvine, pretty quiet city. You might be able to find a park or something to spend time in. You can go away to a beach, maybe, or, or out in nature, up in the mountains. Try to find some places where there's no noise. But there's a second kind of silence as well, and that's pretty simple. I just stop talking, okay? I don't use my word, so I choose for a period of time not to speak. The goal would be both. They're both good and they both have their place, but just realize there's two different things. So if you're around a lot of people, like I was at Disneyland, I was just silent for the entire day. I didn't speak. Now, if someone speaks to me, I'm not rude. I don't feel like, you know, I'm sorry, I can't speak to you. I don't carry a sign that says I'm not talking today. I talk to them. Again, this is not a legalism. Got to be careful with the rules. But it's so important to realize getting into silence does something. Noise transforms us in ways that you don't know until you're in silence and realize how I need to be retransformed by getting away from the noise, right? It's even as simple as when we jump in the car, one of the first things we do because we don't like to be in a place where there's no noise, we turn on the radio, right? Or start up the, you know, 
or the iPod or whatever it is. We don't like to be, we go into a house and we're alone, we turn on the TV. We want some noise. We want to be distracted. And I don't think that's a good place. And let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 11 and 12, you can turn over there. 1 Kings 19, 11 and 12. There's a real interesting story. Some of you might have read. Many of us have probably passed over in reading. But there's something that I think we need to grasp from that one passage. 1 Kings 19, verses 11 and 12. I'm going to read from a different translation than probably some of you have the New Revised Standard Version because it kind of clearly says something that I, I want to hear from this passage. Um, but you could follow along nonetheless. Elijah is at this place. The prophet Elijah is at a place of maximum stress. Many of us could probably relate to that in our lives. A lot of stress. He was having a tough time with the nation of Israel, and the reward of being a faithful, honest prophet in that day was death. You're a good prophet, you get killed. Okay? Nice job. I'd like to sign up for that one. The rulers of Israel at the time, Ahab and Jezebel, were seeking to kill him. He was afraid and running for his life. So he goes into this desert and says, God, I've had enough. Lord, I've had enough. Take my life. Kind of a suicide prayer. I'm done. Just, I'm done. Take my life. Then he travels for 40 days until he reaches Horeb, the mountain of God, where he goes into a cave. So you got the story? He's running for his life. Okay? The the rulers want him dead. He's so tired of this stress that he just says, I want out of this. And God tells him this. Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Pretty neat promise. You're going to get to see God. You're going to get to experience God. God's going to pass by. Now there was a great wind so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. That's pretty cool, right? Maybe God is there. What's it look like to see 100, 150 mile an hour wind? But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. Wow, maybe that's God. We can relate to those in Southern California. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. He'd shown up that way before, right, for the nation of Israel. And after the fire, it says in the New Revised Standard Version, a sound of sheer silence. God wasn't in the wind. God wasn't in the earthquake. God wasn't in the fire. God was in the silence. That's why we need silence. When our life is filled with noise, when we are filled with words, when we're talking all the time or we're listening to other people talk, we will miss God. Promise. To the degree you can learn to get away, create space for God in your life, solitude, and stop talking and get in some quiet places, silence, you will hear God in ways that you have not heard God before. Isn't the desire of your heart when you pray to hear God? I mean, I wish when I prayed every time God was like, hey, Michael, okay, here's the answer to that prayer. Let me tell you exactly what to do. For some reason, he doesn't do that. Maybe he does you. I have never heard God directly speak out loud. But I'm learning to hear God with the, vo- with the ears of my heart. Does that make sense? To hear the inner promptings, to, hear, to feel sensing, to sense movement of God so that when I pray, I get a sense that God is communicating. Because I grew up thinking that prayer was just me talking to God. That's a really boring way to pray, by the way. If you just think you're talking to God and that's it, that's very boring. God wants to talk back. 
he wants to talk back. But it is so noisy, we can't, we don't do a good job listening. So one of the things we have to do is learn to be silent and sit in God's presence so that we can hear God speak. See, it says God speaks in a still, small voice, right? Same kind of scripture. Psalm 51, be still and know that I am God. If you're not still, you're not going to know that. And if you, if God speaks in a still, small voice, and you're not still, and you're not small, if you're always moving around, and you're big, you're going to miss God. Does that make sense? God whispers, and God lets us do our own thing. And solitude and silence are two of these spiritual disciplines that are a foundation for spiritual disciplines that will put your life in a place where you will be able to have God on your mind in a new way. And take God on your mind into everything else that you do. Into your family, into your workplace, into your neighborhood, into your relationships in brand new ways. Do you believe that? I hope you do. These spiritual disciplines in this series are worth doing. They are worth practicing all of them. And my prayer for you is that you would explore them. In fact, the assignment I'd like to give you is choose a time in the next week or two, okay? Because if you don't schedule it, it will not happen. Promise. You have to schedule it. It's like making an appointment with someone else. If you basically say, oh, I miss that friend. I want to spend time with them. Uh, how great is the chance of you doing that if you don't actually call or text or whatever you do and schedule something and get it on the calendar? It's really the same with God. So my encouragement is right now, if you have a calendar with you that you keep, like it's on your phone or something, I would encourage you to take it out even as I'm talking right now and look at your calendar. And if you don't have it, I'd encourage you as soon as you leave here to get it or when you go home or whatever you do to plan your life. And if you don't use a calendar, then that's even easier. You can just pick a time in your head. And do it in the next week to two weeks. Because if you don't, you probably won't. Look at your schedule and say, when can I spend a period of time with God? For some, you might be able to spend a half an hour to an hour. If you, that's all you have, do that. For some, I'd encourage you, if you've got two hours, three hours, even up to four hours, great. If you decide to spend a day, especially if you've done solitude before, I'd encourage you to do that. Take a Saturday and say, I'm going to make this a day with God. And spend time and figure out a way to make that happen. We are all able to do it. The question is, how badly do you want it? How badly do you want it? How badly do you want to live a life of transformation? Okay? So that in this series, oh my God, God shows up to you in a brand new way, in a different way than you've ever experienced God before. That's my prayer for all of you. And I pray we'd be able to do this together. Talk about it with each other. Don't just do it alone. Talk about it. Challenge each other. If you go out to lunch with someone and they say, hey, what do you think about the solitude thing? It's kind of weird. Hey, you know, do you feel a little scared like I feel scared? When would you do it? How would you do it? Could you watch my kids? You watch our kids and we'll watch your kids. And then we can go do, maybe we could do that together. Does that make sense? There's all kinds of ways you've got to get creative about it. But put something down. Give it a try. Do it. And then let somebody know how it went. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wonderful privilege of being your people. And yet we so confess how we wander and we get distracted. We are hurried. We're busy. And we keep saying, God, we want to spend time with you, but, 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 you know, but, but we've got all these things. And you, with your loving face, look upon us. You are so patient. And yet you don't chase after us. 
So I pray that we'd be able to make a decision today to walk with you in some new ways. Help us to take this spiritual discipline, solitude, silence, and prayer, and live it as prayer in a brand new way, that it might wake us up to what it means to be totally dependent on you for our identity, for what you think about us, what you believe about us, and who we are in Christ. God, help us to do that. Make a way, especially for those with a full life, especially for those with young children. Help them to find some space in the midst of that life stage. And may none of us beat ourselves up or feel guilty because of what we don't do. Help us to feel so captivated by your love and your grace that we just look forward to spending time with you. That's our prayer this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.